Hey everybody, Chris here. You may know us these days as the Personal Injury Mastermind, but you've discovered our roots when we first started as the Rankings Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Over the years and hundreds of episodes, we've expanded our reach while staying true to our mission. We help you and your firm dominate the competition with insights from some of the best in the legal industry. You may notice that these older episodes sound a bit different. That's because we also embrace change and growth. I hope you enjoy this episode from the vaults and listen to a few of our newer episodes while you're at it. Thanks for being here. Let's begin. I think the opportunity for professional services firms is, you know, you want to be as competent as possible. That is important. But warmth is an opportunity to help you stand out from others. If you need a consultant to help your firm overcome the bottlenecks associated with growth, I can't think of many people more qualified to do so than today's guest. Not only does he know the ins and outs of running agencies, but he's got his finger on the pulse when it comes to what clients want. And that's exactly why I chose him to be my coach. As a coach and as a consultant, I can't make a decision for my clients, but I can help them narrow the decision. And ultimately the question, after I get the background info about the particular situation, what is your ideal outcome? And what is your minimum acceptable outcome? What is the minimum acceptable here? You're listening to The Rankings Podcast, the show where top marketers and elite personal injury attorneys share their stories about getting to the top and what keeps them there. My guest today is Carl Sakis of Sakis & Company, a digital agency consultant and one of the geniuses to help rankings take it to the next level for legal SEO. He does for agencies what we do for client search engine results. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. SEO is all about the first page, and that's also where we like to start our show. Here's Carl Sakis, founder of Sakis & Company. I've been doing consulting for a long time, really going back to high school, starting as a web designer back in the days of dial-up found clients were asking for advice about marketing, about optimizing their business. So in a sense, I've been doing forms of this for decades since I was a teenager. And coaching is somewhat newer, though certainly something that's fit into a lot of my work in different ways through volunteer activities, through different agency leadership roles. But I mean, in a sense, it's almost the, the family business. My parents were both career army officers, surround, you know, leading, leading teams. And uh, one of my grandfathers was a business professor and management consultant. So I hear stories about consulting with big companies, getting, you know, helping them get better results, better relationships with their employees. So I feel like I, you know, it's a, a, a long time coming. So you've worked in all kinds of different organizations around marketing, growth, operations. How did that multi-field experience really hone your expertise? Definitely helpful in identifying different best practices, different opportunities from different industries. One of my past roles was as, as an investment research analyst at a mutual fund company. So I was doing equity research for our $1.5 billion North American fund, looking at companies in every industry. And so I could see you know, what was, what was notable in one industry, what was notable in another, this and that. And, and although today I focus exclusively within professional services, specifically with digital agencies, it helps to have had that broad experience. Yeah, and one of the things I find interesting is, do you find that teaching helps you expand your own skill set? You know, many years ago, 
And when I say many years, I, it's actually about 15 years ago, I was a teacher. Wow. I, was, I was always terrified of teaching my students something that was incorrect. So Ooh. it forced me to like over-prepare. Do you find that teaching, you know, being a mentor has that same type of effect on yourself? For sure. Uh, in the sense that, you know, if you can explain things to others, it means you have to get better at understanding it yourself, whether that's fully understanding it or maybe, you know, getting one chapter ahead of the students in the, in the textbook. And I found that, you know, as I review certain situations with clients over and over again, it helps me refine my understanding and also identify new frameworks around organizing your services, around how to structure your team, things like that. So for sure, it's a great opportunity to develop develop things through teaching others. Yeah, and I love that. And you probably, you get to see maybe if something's on the edge, you went one direction with one piece of advice, you get to see the outcome and you take maybe a different approach or you reanalyze, you do those re retrospectives. I'm sure that that really helps as well. Yes. And, and indeed, that's partly a mindset. You know, I'll do a debrief with my team after every single event, after working with new clients, things like that. Three simple questions. Debrief. What worked? What didn't? What to do differently next time? You know, it comes from the military after action review of what worked, what didn't, what to do differently. Three simple yet very powerful questions. Yeah, and that's great. And that I think that's a foundational component of continuous improvement is just constantly being flexible and willing to adapt. So let, let's talk about Sekus and Company. Why did you start this business? What are, what are your founding principles? Well, I started what's now Sekus and Company in 2013 based on my experience as an agency operations leader. So as a project manager, as a director of client services, as a director of operations, Basically, you know, taking care of clients and running the business side of the business for the owners at one agency and then another. And I noticed an opportunity. People start agencies because they love the work. Maybe they love doing strategy. Maybe they love design, maybe development, maybe PR, maybe something else. But they don't necessarily love running a business. A lot of people, you know, and I imagine this is true for many PI attorneys, you love negotiating settlements, or you love litigating, you love the law, but you may not love running a law practice. And that's okay. You know, you can structure things to focus on what you like doing, but there are some things that need to get done. And I realized that was an opportunity for me where I like doing the things that a lot of business owners don't love doing, and I can make life easier for them. So put, put all that together, my consulting and digital experience going back to high school and college, more recent experience around doing analysis, experience in agency operations, put it all together. And, and since then, I've worked with hundreds of clients all over the world. That's incredible. And what you're saying reminds me of the e-myth. It's most yes. of us to start businesses are that technician and we're all trying to transition into the manager and ultimately the entrepreneur and the owner. And I think that we see tremendous value from your expertise because sometimes we get a little burnout doing those technician types of roles. Yes. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's getting a reminder from someone outside of your day to day about, hey, have you, you know, thought about this? Because doing that now makes it easier for the future. It, you know, thinking, for instance, sales pipeline for any firm or a PI firm, you know, if you're not keeping your marketing pipeline full now, eventually your sales pipeline will dry up. And eventually that creates all kinds of problems. So it's the things you're doing today impact what your firm will be doing six months from now. Yet it's so easy when, you, when you're in the middle of day-to-day -day firefighting not to pay attention to those longer-term things. 
We all need a little nudge in the right direction every now and then to make sure we're focusing on the right tasks. I know I do. But aside from being a guiding light to keep agency owners on track, Carl Sakis of Sakis & Company built and implements growth strategies. So I wanted to find out how they do this and what some of the pitfalls are that agency owners tend to stumble into. One is to get clear on the strat- the services you choose to offer. Uh, I think of the model as think, teach, do. Think is strategy where your client's asking, what should I do? That might be, you know, if a client at your firm is at, asking for advice about what to do. Maybe they want to handle it from there, but they're like, I, I need a legal opinion on what to do or a marketing opinion on what to do. You know, so that's think. Teach is about training and empowerment where people want to do things themselves. They want to do things internally. Uh, you know, maybe that's guidance on how they can, you know, manage risk or build their pipeline and so that their internal team can do things. And then, you know, think, teach, do. Do is that implementation. Do it for me. And what I find is that sometimes people get sucked into doing types of work that they don't want to do. And, and that actually leads to the second point, which is around being intentional about your, your services. So I, I know, for instance, Chris, we've talked about, you know, PI firms are often litigation oriented or settlement oriented. You know, pick the one you want and say no to the, the opportunities you don't want or, you know, re- refer them elsewhere as appropriate. Uh, just because your business is doing things a certain way now doesn't mean you're stuck doing that for the rest of your career. Yeah, and I completely agree. And there's all different benefits, you know, benefits, uh, pros and cons of the different types of positioning, whether you want to be the the heavy hitting trial attorney or you want to be the settlement firm, you know, that that has more, you know, cash flow, more predictable cash flow, quicker cash flow. There's all different types of ways to approach this. You know, so in terms of measuring the strategy's progress, you said that there's just one KPI that owners need to be looking at. You know, what is that magic KPI? It's going to vary by firm, but if we were to narrow it to just one, I would start with your per capita billings. What I think of as revenue per FTE, where FTE is someone working 40 hours. You know, so that's one, one full-time person. If you've got someone who's working 20 hours a week, that's one half of an FTE, if you have contractors or of council team members, you know, you'd be prorating what their FTE equivalent was. And then ultimately you'd look at, you know, looking at your total billables, dividing it by the FTE count, that'll give you per capita billables or what I call revenue per FTE. And that's important because if you've got a bunch of part-time people, you're not expecting them to contribute a full-time workload billably. And then look at that number. So indeed, take a look for past years. How do your revenue per FTE compare this year versus previous years? You know, the nice thing about having that single per capita billables figure is that as your headcount may have gone up or may have gone down, it gives you a consistent number that you can use to compare regardless of the firm size. I think that's tremendous because that can help with forecasting. It can help with utilization, all these different components of running a business that, you know, are, are basically complementing the business. And in terms of like a general rule, is, is this correct? Or, you know, this is something we haven't talked about. Is it is kind of a general rule, $200,000 per, you know, FTE is that kind of a general number that people throw out? That's a good target when it comes to agencies. You know, if you're a specialist agency like Rankings.io, you know, specifically focused on PI attorneys, a generalist agency that does, you know, a range of things for anyone is going to be lower. 
But, you know, it, it is worth considering how is that changing over time? Uh, ideally, you're finding ways to increase per capita billables because that's a way for owners of the firm to make more money without having to work quite as many hours themselves as, I mean, there's the joke about making partner at a law firm. You know, it's like, you know, where you're working tons of hours hoping to make partner. And it's like winning a hot dog eating contest where the prize is more hot dogs. <laughs> Another thing that we talk a lot about is making yourself optional. And yes. how involved you are in the day-to-day running your company is something that a lot of leaders really struggle with. So first up, can you give us just a two-minute version of what are the four stages of leading a business or an agency, basically, whatever you, yeah. wherever you want to go here? So thinking of yourself as a business owner and thinking about your day-to-day involvement in your business, there are four stages. And if you think of a, a ga- gasoline gauge, a fuel gauge, a meter, you know, imagine you've got you know, an arrow moving along. So in the early days, you are going to be mandatory. You're mandatory to everything happening. You are needed for everything. Your team can't handle things without you. Then you can move up to necessary, stage two. Stage two is necessary. You know, your team's handling stuff, sometimes poorly. Maybe you could take a vacation for, you know, take a day off for a day or two, but things are probably going to blow up. When you move from necessary to needed, things are a lot better. Things are going relatively smoothly. You can go on vacation for a week or two. Life is much easier. And then if you want, you can pursue what I would call, you know, in stage four, optional. When you're optional, imagine the, the fuel gauge is now totally full and, you know, in a good way, you are optional to your firm's day-to-day functioning. And it is worth considering you can be in multiple stages at once. Maybe if you're the rainmaker for your firm, you might be mandatory or necessary. On the other hand, maybe you are optional when it comes to some of the administrative work in running your firm. Key is you want to get clear on what is your stage and where do you want to be? Because then you can take steps to move on up toward where you want to go. But if you don't know where you want to go, it's going to be a challenge to get there. I kind of equate that to, you know, you're wearing multiple hats, you need to shed some of those hats, you need to delegate, you need to find your high value activities and really stick to those. And, and also, you know, so how does someone audit, you know, where they're at on at that scale or on that scale? I would start by looking at how many hours or days or weeks do you feel like you can be away from your business without things blowing up? If you can't go out to lunch without knowing something will be broken by the time you get back, you're probably in stage one, right? Mandatory. If you can get away for a day or two and things are okay, maybe you're in stage two, you're in necessary. If you could take a week or even two weeks off, you're probably in stage three. You know, you're now needed, not necessary. And if you can confidently take, say, a one-month sabbatical, you're probably optional. I think that's the goal, right? To be optional because then you can apply your efforts wherever you want. And I, I think anyone looking to, you know, sell their business, they need to be optional. Otherwise, yeah. you know, if it depends upon the owner, then, you know, maybe it's more difficult to sell. Most people I found choose to either seek stage three and many seek optional. But, you know, for people who are listening, you know, if you're like, I love litigation, if my job were such that I never get to go to court and battle it out, you know, with the, the companies that are that are hurting and trying to hurt my clients, you can keep doing litigation. Uh, you may not want to become totally optional or, or if you're more settlement oriented, you know, 
if you want to be involved in negotiating the deals, you, you can make that happen. But maybe a way to think of it would be you are optional in the sense that you're choosing to do it, not you are forced to do it because there's no one else. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so so continuing on this conversation, you know, yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs have trouble with relinquishing control. How can they overcome that feeling? I would start by looking at what has you stuck. You know, uh, do you not want to delegate to your team because maybe you don't have people you could delegate to? You know, maybe you don't have people on the team or maybe you have people, but you can't totally rely on them. In that case, you're going to need to get the right people in, get them trained up and things like that. But let's say you've got a great team. They're competent. They want to do the work. They have the time to do it. I I think of that as desire, competence, and capacity, right? You need all three of those in the Venn diagram. If you've got desire, competence, capacity with your team, in that case, then I would would look within. It's, It's probably more about you than about them. I have some of my clients call me their agency therapist. I clarify, I'm not an actual therapist, uh, but I have been to therapy myself on and off for over 20 years. There are some things where if you just keep getting stuck and you keep repeating the same patterns, it may make sense to work with a therapist to figure out what is going on there and how can you get unstuck. There's that the saying of the definition of insanity is doing the same yeah. thing over and over again, expecting different results. Which I I would say, you know, if you do the same thing over and over again and your circumstances change, you probably will get different results. But, you know, day to day, it may be similar. Whether you're dealing with clients, referral partners, or even coworkers, managing expectations is essential. And while many of us know that we should do it, few of us know how to do it. But Carl has a framework for managing relationships that can boost people's perception of you and even keep clients happy if you fall short on your promises. Worth and competence is a concept from the book The Human Brand by Chris Malone and Susan Fisk. Susan Fisk is a psychology professor at Princeton. Chris Malone is a former Fortune 500 CMO. They understand the psychology of people and psychology within marketing. And the idea of warmth and competence is that it's a way of thinking how you interact with your clients and prospective clients and with your employees, with your team. And if we think about warmth and competence from the human brand, you know, you could be high warmth, medium or low warmth, and you could be high competence, medium or low competence. Now, ideally, if we think about, say, the companies that that you work with, or the team members you work with, ideally, you'd have high warmth and high competence. And what are those? Well, competence is do you get the job done, right? Did you do what you said you would do? Hopefully, you know, did you win the case? You know, that would be high competence. Uh, Warmth, though, is is interesting where uh, that's how do people feel when they interact with you, whether that's how do your employees feel, how do your clients feel, and so that you can have different combinations. Ideally, you're high warmth and competence, but you know, maybe you're in a situation where you're highly competent, you know, you're getting things done, but people don't feel special, right? So it might be high competence, low warmth. They're like, what's going on? You know, I, I like to say that if you've done something, but you haven't told the client you've done it, from their perspective, you haven't done it, right? The opposite could be true as well. You know, maybe you don't get the payout that you expected for the clients that you were hoping for, but your client loved working with you. They felt like you did the best you could, right? 
that's a case where maybe competence was, you know, in the middle, but they felt the warmth and they, they're happy with the outcome, you know, based on, you know, you're doing the best you could. And I think the opportunity for professional services firms is, you know, you want to be as competent as possible. That is important. But warmth is an opportunity to help you stand out from others, right? Where if you're able to deliver a high warmth experience by taking that extra time to ask how things are going and give them an extra update, even if it's sharing bad news, right? You know, it's like getting some sort of news on how things are going. This is really important to them. They want to know. That'll give you a potentially give you a pass on if you stumble on competence or things are taking longer than you expected or things like that. Um, that's powerful, and you can do that with your team as well. Uh, for instance, I recently was at the the doctor for an annual physical, and I asked him, you know, how is his family doing? As I recall, he had just had his second child. He seemed surprised that I remembered that, but I mean, that's I, I knew it was important to him, right? right? You know, mm -hmm. so. Um, and, and the good news is, is, you know, his family, including his two sons, you know, everyone's everyone's doing well. But, you know, keep in mind, asking one of your employees, like, you know, how is their family doing? You know, how, how are their pets doing? It's a small thing, but it shows that you care about them as a person, not just as an employee. And you know what? I, I mentioned my grandfather was a business professor. He was at Cornell for 40 some years and a longtime management consultant with big companies. I came across some of his research from the 1950s in what we would now call organizational behavior, how companies work with their teams. And one of the things he found was in his surveys of employees at large corporations, employees wished that their managers treated them as people rather than just as workers, right? What can you do for me? What have you done for me lately? We've known that for decades and decades, yet how many large companies treat their employees as just workers and not people. So if you manage people, you have an opportunity to create a better experience. And you know what, if you're worried about team turnover, if you can adopt a warmth and competence mindset, trying to create a high warmth, high competence experience for your clients and also for your employees, you're gonna keep good people longer and that makes everything in your life easier. I think that's a masterclass on its own. I relate this a lot to the firms that ask me about how, how to obtain more reviews. It seems like some firms do a tremendous job and others don't. And I think it comes down to, because there's, you can implement tools, there's definitely technology that can help. Right. There's different tactical approaches, but I think that the warmth component, when they have this great experience, yes. the expectations are set, they, they are communicated through the entire journey. And then the competence where, you know, the, let's say the warmth and competence is there. Well, then that's probably going to the outcome or the likelihood of that individual being an evangelist and and that that a willingness to leave a review is probably much higher than if the competence was there and the warmth was missing or if the warmth was there and the competence was missing. They could at least say, in, you know, in, in that case of like, I feel like they did the best they could. They were fighting for me. Right. Yeah, so I think that's powerful. I relate that to just so many things. And I, I, I think about that, like I said, from a, a team standpoint, a client standpoint, it's just a really simple exercise to kind of run through your head. And I wanted to talk about another one. And yeah, this yeah. one impacted me more from a stress, from a stress level. It, it, yeah. it lowers my stress when I think when I do this exercise. So Excellent. I was wondering if you could kind of share with our audience the ideal outcome versus minimum acceptable. 
whenever one of my clients is struggling with a big decision, they'll often ask me for help sorting through what to do. A key thing is as a coach and as a consultant, I can't make a decision for my clients, but I can help them narrow the decision. And ultimately the question, after I get the background info about the particular situation, what is your ideal outcome in this situation? And what is your minimum acceptable outcome? What is the minimum acceptable here? And it's going to be different for each person. It's going to be different depending on where you are in your business. For instance, this will often come up. Uh, or, well, I can give some examples, but uh, you know, what's your reaction to that, Chris? So for me, I relate it to an actual example that I can share with our audience. So we were experimenting, potentially offering pay-per-click as a service, and we had a couple clients. And I was worried that if I told them we weren't going to do pay-per-click, that they would just leave and, and quit being a client entirely. And I started thinking about, you know, what's the ideal outcome? We have a kind of conversation. They understand. They appreciate the transparency. What's the minimum acceptable? Now, I loved working with this client, but the minimum acceptable was, you know, if they chose to go a different direction, that was okay. So once I understood that, my stress just went away immediately because I knew that, you know, even if if I had this candid conversation that they chose to go a different direction, then that would be okay. Perfect. And, and for people listening, if you're like, huh, I feel like, you know, my, my firm's marketing pipeline isn't strong enough to do that. Well, one, you should talk to Chris because that will strengthen your pipeline. And then you can feel more confident about saying no to poor fit options. But, you know, within that context, if you're feeling a little shaky, Maybe in that case, your minimum acceptable outcome is you need to keep the client no matter what, rather than you're willing to lose them. You may make some different decisions. You may not push quite as far. You may not give an ultimatum or things like that. So it helps to get clear on your ideal because then you can manage toward that and your minimum acceptable because that gives you the parameters for where you're trying to land. It identifies, you know, don't push too far if you're trying to get things that you don't even care about. And also, you know, where might you need to compromise uh, in order to achieve the outcome you, you want? Running a business is stressful enough as is. You don't need to make it harder than it already is. Absolutely. And I've heard other individuals, they talk about, you know, when you're laying in bed and you can't sleep and you're just running something through your mind over and over, they say to journal it down, you know, create a plan. And I think what's helped me is like, you know, I don't sleep with a journal next to my bed. I do have my phone, but I like to kind of keep that separate when yeah. I'm getting ready to relax. And I, I kind of run this exercise through my head of the ideal outcome versus minimal acceptable. And once I have clarity there, then it just seems to the stress kind of fades away. I, I understand what the outcomes could potentially be. And, and then I'm okay with those outcomes. And, you know, for everyone listening uh, within your PI firm, you know, maybe you've got a client who's stuck and you've recommended something, but they're having trouble making a decision, right? You can ask them, what is their ideal outcome? What's minimum acceptable? Maybe they're like, well, you know, ideally we get $2 million. Minimum, if we get at least $100,000, we'll be okay. That gives you a lot of flexibility. On the other hand, if they tell you, you know, our minimum is we need 2 million and our ideal is 10 million. And you know, from your experience, that is highly unlikely. You can try to manage their expectations, or you may decide if this is part of your intake process, you may decline the case, right? I mean, you can't afford to work on a contingency basis for a client who would never accept a reasonable settlement. 
This could save you a ton of time and stress in your client process. Yeah, and I, I like to call that teach your clients not to be crazy. You know, I've noticed that you do a ton of volunteering. You're, you're also a bartender for an old-timey 1930s railroad car. How did you get involved with that? Well, I've always been into trains, you know, since I was growing up. And uh, back when I lived in New Jersey, uh, friends were like, hey, there's a restored Pullman railroad car that takes people on trips all over the U.S. and into Canada. Uh, you know, we think you'd like it. You know, you travel for free. You're working behind the scenes. There's great food. You meet some interesting people. Uh, and so I checked it out. I, I've been doing this now. Uh, you know, I've done at least one trip, sometimes a few trips every year for over a decade. And it is fun. It's hard work too, right? You know, long days and this and that and demanding passengers. But because I'm doing it as a volunteer, you know, I, I can have fun with creating the best experience possible for people who are joining us. And indeed, because we're run, you know, it's a nonprofit, I'm volunteering with them. I know that the work we're doing is helping preserve history and, you know, create an experience for people that most people alive today have never seen before in terms of what the passenger experience is. Plus visit some, you know, fun trips to some interesting places. So it's, you know, sort of that perfect combination of, of, of interests. I love that. And I, me and my wife talk about when we have our future child, one of mm -hmm. the things that we're going to do is have them be a server or a bartender, because I think that you really level up your customer, you know, your customer satisfaction skills, your EQ, your empathy when you work in that field. Absolutely. You know, I mean, thinking, and again, this is all on a volunteer basis, but, you know, certainly you've had some difficult passengers, demanding passengers. Uh, and so it's, you know, how do I what can I do to make them as happy as possible within reason, right? Kind of ideal versus minimum acceptable, you know, outcome. If someone wants to like hang off the back of the train as we're going along, that's, you know, that's not an option. <laughs> but otherwise it's like, what can I do? And indeed, as you know, I, I think for anyone who's thinking of sending their kids to, to work in a restaurant, uh, certainly my experience is that the most demanding passengers or clients are also the ones who tip the least or not at all. Funny how that works out. Yeah, and I, I've seen that myself, <laughs> being a bartender back in the past. Yes. Carl, as we close up to, we have a final three for three segment. It's just a quick hitter, quick fire round. So starting out, which habit contributes the most to your success? I would say follow through. I'll join a call, a Zoom call, and more than once people will be like, wow, you, you showed up on right on time. It's kind of a sad state of affairs that showing up on time for a meeting is worth commenting on. And certainly for anyone listening, if you're like, oh, I've got you know too much going on, I can barely keep up, get someone who is detail-oriented and can help you stay on track. Even though I am detail-oriented, I have people on my team to help me, uh, which is certainly helpful. So you know that follow-through. Basically, if you commit to doing it, do it. And if you decide you can't commit to it, say no rather than you know, dragging things out. You know, I, I think of the word integrity there, right? You say yes. you're going to do something. Yeah, I love that. And which entrepreneur do you admire the most? So this is the family connection. Uh, my grandfather, the business professor and and uh, and business consultant, 
I actually connected with one of his students from the 1960s to hear about, you know, what was he like as a professor? Because I, you know, he has since passed on and I didn't see him in his teaching. Uh, and so in spite of his, you know, international travel, he would say, you know, on a Thursday to his students that he was, you know, flying to the Netherlands to consult with Nestle. Uh, and he would be back in time. He apparently never missed a class and also was able to create uh, an experience so that everyone he was working with, you know, could make it so that they felt special, right? So that, you know, that was powerful and, you know, ultimately was able to build a business that supported him and his family. And, you know, and, and certainly I, I feel lucky to be following in his footsteps in helping companies work better with their team and taking care of, taking care of getting things done. So yeah, that's my answer there. That's incredible. And, and being an avid reader, this one might be tough for you at the end here, but if you had to <laughs> recommend one business book, which would it be and why? You know, my parents are both career army officers. Uh, Dad went to West Point. They're both in, you know, for their, their full career. Uh, but I do have a Navy-related book. So the Navy-related book is called Turn the Ship Around uh, by a former U.S. Navy submarine captain who took his sub from worst to first in his, in his group. And the key to doing that, and, and this is an important book about leadership, even if you're not overseeing a submarine, it still applies to you, whether you're running an agency, running your law firm, or you know, leading a volunteer activity as part of your, you know, your outside of work things. The idea that he espouses is that so often we focus on leader-follower relationships. The leader tells people what to do, the follower asks what to do. And that means that you as the leader are a huge bottleneck, right? You know, everyone's asking you, what do I do? If you're listening to this right now, maybe you've gotten interrupted amidst listening to this episode by one of your employees wanting to know what to do. There's a solution. Instead of doing leader follower shift to what in the book, turn the ship around, what what they call leader leader. When it's leader leader, your team is thinking through what to do before they come to you, before they ask for help. And so indeed, your team can say, I intend to X, Y, Z. Instead of saying, what do I do? They're like, here's the situation. I intend to do this, this, and this. As the manager, you can now add, you can now say either proceed, you could ask some clarifying questions and then say proceed, or maybe you have some concerns based on things your employee doesn't, maybe isn't aware of. You can ask them to regroup based on that. Imagine if you only had to make 90% of the decisions you make now because they have pre-organized most of them and you can just say proceed or ask some clarifying questions. Uh, and I, I use that, it worked in my volunteering as well with the American Marketing Association. And I assigned that book at the beginning of my term as president as a core way of how we were gonna run things without requiring the crazy hours. And in spite of cutting back on the time commitment, out of 75 chapters across North America, we managed to place number two in all of North America by adopting that turn the ship around leader leader model. So check it out. I love that. So would you say that leader leader is is another word for it is empowerment? Is that basically what it's what it's about? Is empowering those individuals to to lead on their own? That is a good way to think about it. And and if people don't feel empowered, I had a client years ago who was like, my team keeps interrupting me. I'm like, oh well that. That's bad. Uh, have you tracked, like, what are the types of interruptions and the people who are interrupting? It's like, no, I said, okay, do that for a week and let's review. 
And when I reviewed the data, uh, there, was, there were some themes. And ultimately, it turned out some of the questions were reasonable. And there were some other situations where he'd actually created his, a problem for himself where the team could, in theory, decide, but then he would come back later and interfere. And so they stopped deciding. They didn't feel empowered because they knew he was going to you know, suddenly show up deposit some negative feedback and fly away. The technical term for that, by the way, is swoop and poop. So for him, the, the setup was create opportunities for the team to make decisions where he wouldn't question their decision. But if it was within their swim lanes, he would back them up. And you know what? It reduced his stress. Ultimately, he was able to make himself optional, right? We're talking about the stages. He was able to go from an early, earlier stages to stage four, and he ultimately was able to sell his business. That would never have happened if he hadn't empowered and, and otherwise set up his team for success. That's incredible. Carl, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people go to learn more about you? You can learn more at sakasandcompany.com. That's S-A-K-A-S-A-N-D, the word company.com. If you're active on Twitter, I'm at Carl Sakas. That's K-A-R-L-S-A-K-A-S on Twitter all kinds of free advice, hundreds of articles with a focus on helping marketing agencies. But if you're running any kind of professional services firm, including a PI firm, odds are many of the tips will apply as well. Carl has an immense amount of knowledge in this area. I don't think there was a single piece of advice there that I haven't used here at Rankings. And for me, his thoughts on ideal outcomes and minimum acceptable outcomes have prevented many nights of lost sleep. like to thank Carl from Sakis and Company for sharing his story with us. I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to the Rankings Podcast. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode or have an idea for a future guest whose story you'd like to hear, leave me a review and tell me more. I'll catch you next week with another inspiring story and some SEO tips and tricks, all with page one in mind. Page one in mind.